I did do that one time in class when my editing two teacher who I had for one day because because of this really she kept saying Einstein instead of Eisenstein and it was after the like fifth time that I, I just like was laughing and it's like I'm sorry okay well like his name is Eisenstein that, <laughs> that's egregious you know yeah. that's egregious he was a bit of an Einstein yeah, sure. Yeah. A genius. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and with me, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of us picks a theme for the week... And then the other two hosts have to program a double feature in response to that theme. And we do this in a cycle where, you know, it, we kind of go through the group, the three of us, at once a week we, we shift. And I usually remember when it's my turn. Um, and I will say, I should admit, I remembered it was my turn this week. Uh, I had just forgotten to then, like, finish the job. And the day before we were going to record, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's my topic. I got to, like, come to a, the episode tomorrow with a topic. And I didn't have one. So in the midst of the episode, I texted my wife. And I said, hey, Molly, like, what do you want to watch this week? What well, would be uh, something that you would enjoy? Because she, you know, she has to watch these movies typically if she's up for it if she wants to otherwise she'll watch her own shows but you don't force her (laughs) no no but there is you know there's always like the gauntlet double feature night that's like part of the work week basically and um (laughs) she suggested a few options uh first off which was fishing which i thought was funny because that was an episode two of the gauntlet because that was also my first topic Uh, three Episode two was Revolutions. Episode oh, three right. was Episode Gone three. Fishing. But still, my first topic. My first topic was fishing. Yes. Uh, and then she turned to her favorite film, Sam Peckinpah's Convoy, uh, which is really her favorite film because of uh, the theme song that the film is adapted from. And she likes the trucker aesthetic. She thinks it's very funny. We have named our car Rubber Duck. That's the nickname for our car, named after the convoy song. Uh, and I even thought of trying to do an intro to this episode in trucker speak. <laughs> but I would have just like mortifyingly like embarrassed myself. So I didn't do that. But that was the, that's the theme I decided to go with, convoy. But in reality, trucks. I wanted films about trucks. And I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, because I felt like, oh, maybe there's like some crazy way you, you all could take it. But this is really delivered on both counts of exactly what I was hoping for. One film that captures an American trucker aesthetic, and especially of an era when there was like a boom in trucker films for whatever reason. And then another film that's just a truck film from another country, because I figured that would be fun to have into the mix, because, you know, they got trucks everywhere. <laughs> they're not always called that though as we will discuss uh, yes yeah, certainly certainly but trust me they, it counts the trucks <laughs> but absolutely uh, but so i had a great time i'm excited to talk about them uh i think they're both like relatively silly movies 
and have a lot in common, both with each other, of course, and then like some other films that we've watched rather recently, which I thought was uh, kind of amusing. But before I get into all of that, Andy, you kick us off. You had the earlier of the two film. What did you bring this week? There's a lot of great movies featuring trucks and that kind of truck driver representation you are referring to, especially from America in the the mid to late 70s. Uh, And there's just also a lot of movies that I love that, that feature trucks prominently, not even necessarily in that kind of you know, commercial long haul semi truck driver, you know, mode that that things like, you know, convoy are 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 based off of. But I was like really kind of pushing myself to to check out something that I, I hadn't seen before. So I uh sort of came across a, a movie that that I'd I'd long kind of put there somewhere in the the recesses of my mind as I should check this thing out. And like often happens on, on this podcast, uh, a topic sort of presents itself as the perfect opportunity to uh, move something to the front of the line to, to, to jump the queue, so to speak. That is definitely the case with the movie that I ultimately selected. That film is... Hell Drivers from 1957, directed by British filmmaker Cy Enfield. He's American. He's American? He was blacklisted. Oh, no shit, dude. Wow. I guess I never I never knew that. Okay. Just def- so that's where some of that media, you know, American trucker energy comes from. It all yeah. makes sense now. Yeah, I've got a thesis I'll introduce uh, okay. in a little bit Definitely. about this. Well, let me let me do a take two on that. Uh, no, no, we'll keep that in. It's nice. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, dude, yeah. and I've told you I've been getting one up a lot lately. I'm sensitive to it. You know. I'm I mean, sorry. fine. We'll, we'll, sorry. we'll go with it. We're not. We're not. You know. We're not prissy little things. You know. We're doing an episode <laughs> on truck drivers, right? You know. Anyway. This movie shows how much time I had to do a lot of deep research, too, by the way. Um, This film stars the great Stanley Baker, who is Welsh. I know that for a fact. Uh, He plays Tom Yately uh, slash Joe, I think, as he puts on his initial application, because he is an ex-con in need of a job. And... uh, I guess he doesn't have all of his paperwork in line. So he he can't be too choosy. He's a desperate man in need of work, fresh out of the joint. And he hears, we discover, from a friend who is no longer alive or around or, or well, that there is a, 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 a company, a construction company of sorts, that... Uh, has a a lot of turnover in the area of drivers. They always seem to be in need of drivers because, we will discover, the type of driving they have their, their, uh, their, their crews go through is, I mean... Uh, damn near suicidally dangerous. He uh, signs up to become a driver for Howlett, the, the Howlett Haulage Company, who 
push their their lorry drivers, as they're known in the UK, to essentially ferry uh, massive loads of gravel back and forth between two sites. And it's a it's a 20 mile round trip, 32 kilometers, as they would probably refer to it in in uh, in the in the UK. Um, and and the whole thing is they have to haul these loads of gravel at breakneck speeds because the minimum amount of trips required for the drivers through the course of a working day is 12. Now, if you did the minimum in the course of a working day, that is 240 miles of driving per day. But, as we discover, these guys are pushed well beyond even those limits. Uh, the, the high watermark held by Red, the, the sort of foreman of the crew and lead trucker, played by the great Patrick McGowan, he is usually pulling off 18 trips a day, which is 360 miles of driving through the course of an average working day. They do this by never dropping the needle below 30 miles per hour as they tear ass across seemingly very narrow British country roads uh, with plenty of other drivers and obstacles and also other members of this trucking crew who are competing <laughs> to be the one who delivers the most uh, loads of gravel. I mean, it is absolutely <laughs> insane. It's, I mean, we're going to get into it, but this, folks, we are in basically the lorry driving equivalent of figure eight racing, yes. basically, yes. <laughs> throughout this movie. It is bonkers and something that i'd heard from a lot of people is that it features some some absolutely like crazy scenes of of these trucks just like smashing into each other and, and going off road just to deliver a bunch of fucking gravel to a pit somewhere uh it's got a really good cast of a lot of at the time soon to be very big very big British stars, including a very young Bond David. Alert. Well, I was going to say a very <laughs> young David McCallum, and in his third role, only his third role yet, the man, the myth, James Bond himself, Sean Connery, as one of just the sort of like supporting lorry drivers. You know, he's not in there much, but but when he is, you cannot miss him. This is a star in the making. He's easily the most handsome man of the bunch, and uh, it, it, it certainly shows in this group of very, very kind of roughneck British lorry drivers. Um, there's a lot of other funny people and funny performances in it, including Herbert Lom as Gino Rossi, the Italian immigrant of the group, the romantic, the hopeless romantic who just likes to go to the pictures to see foreign films, Italian films, so he can hear his own language. Uh, yeah, Tom falls in love with the uh, sort of falls in love <laughs> yeah. with the, the secretary. Uh, her name is Lucy and uh, 
you know, this leads to tension and, you know, the typical kind of uh, romantic subplot you would see in lots of kind of, you know, noir-like films. And this does have shades of film noir in it as well. It isn't just a story about lorry drivers trying to kill themselves. There's also a sort of crime element that will emerge throughout the film, which we will get to. But, yeah, I had seen a lot of people for... for uh, years say, hey, this is a pretty solid little like British, you know, uh, film noir slash almost kind of kitchen sink realism. It's got shades of that to it and uh, very well worth checking out. So I thought, let's go, let's 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 ride, let's drive, let's let's do it. And uh, yeah, I had a blast with it. It's a, it's a very fun, uh, crazy little picture and I, I definitely look forward to uh, to getting into it with you folks today. That actually really surprises me that you haven't seen it before. I mean I haven't, but the film to me really evoked like this is a movie your dad showed you that you really liked when you were, you know, as a kid. Uh, this seems like a classic kind of Mr. Stasoulis film oh yeah well i mean i he was too busy uh making me watch zulu the other big sigh and field pitch yeah, a thousand yeah. times so <laughs> you know yeah that might explain that there you go well cool well thank you marsh your film also starts with the letter h um tell us about it yeah so i'm a huge fan of like trucker noir you know, from the original cycle, Thieves Highway by Jules Dassin, They Drive by Night by Raoul Walsh, I think. I can't remember. Uh, and Plunder Road, which is a kind of uh, heist trucking film. It's the film where they convert the gold they steal into the bumpers of the cars, you know, as a way to get away. But they don't get away because ah. it's the 50s. Um, I love that stuff. And when Andy told me he was leaning towards Hell Drivers, I was sort of like, ah, there's the noir, you know, I'm not going to not going to bring two noirs, although I thought it would be would be fun maybe to to pair like Thieves Highway with it, because then it would be like blacklisted American directors doing trucking in the UK or whatever, <laughs> which programmers don't steal my idea. Um, so that with that road closed off to me. I, I it came down to like two films basically. Uh, one is this movie I'd never heard of, but came across called Road Movie from 1973 by Joseph Strick, and uh, this film I, I didn't pick because it sounded a lot like a film that I brought for your Global Highways episode. You want to talk about trucking, and you want to talk about unique trucking. Yeah, Irasima. And no, or the Vainglory of Command are both trucking movies. That's you know, true. Global highways, the military truck, and of course, the Brazilian, yeah, rainforest truck. But uh, I was reflecting on that, and this movie, road movie, sounded way too much like Erasima because it's like two guys who are horrible pick up a, a sex worker and treat her bad, and that's the film. And it's like early seventies miserableism. It should be an exploitation film, but it's like so artful. I actually watched it, which is why I'm talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, ha I had to see it, but it's really artful and it's really interesting and it's really good, but I didn't pick it 
because it is honestly like an American Irasima. And I was also like, the vibes around here have been kind of bad lately, or at least they've kind of been like heavy. We've been doing a lot of horror. Um, and then I thought of Molly. I was like, this is Molly's topic. And you know what? Molly yeah. loves Convoy. And so I thought, why not pick a film that was shamelessly marketed in certain territories as Convoy 2? Which is incredible if you think about it, because this film came out the same year as Convoy. <laughs> so imagining that there a was... quick turnaround. Yeah, yeah imagining the turnaround, <laughs> but no. Uh, and so I settled on a, a movie that has a theme song uh, that is better than the movie itself. Uh, and that film yes. is the Canadian-American co-production of High Ballin' from 1978, directed by Englishman Peter Carter, who moved to Canada and <laughs> made a bunch of films. Interestingly, he uh, got his career start working for the J. Arthur Rank Organization, which is the company that produced Andy's film, The Hell Drivers. But High Ballin' is an AIP co-production with Ambassador Films, which was a Canadian firm. And folks, we are once again in Canadian tax shelter cinema territory. My sin for the second time, because part of this was also like, you guys may remember when I brought a Canadian film, Visiting Hours, uh, for the hospital episode, and like, not one of our better movies, you know? Uh, it's, it's fine, but like, it's not that memorable compared to a lot of the stuff I think we've watched on, on the podcast. You know, just relative. Yeah, some very memorable moments. Yeah, memorable though, you know? Ironside, you know. So I was like, maybe I can maybe I can redeem myself and, and bring another Canadian film. But uh it's kind of it's kinda of, kinda of maybe not the case, you know. Uh let me get let me get into it. So highballin' is uh, essentially Smokey on the Bandit Smokey and the Bandit Smokey on the Bandit sounds like like the porn knockoff. Smoke on my Smoke on my Bandit. Yeah. Holy fuck. Uh, it's Smokey and the Bandit exploitation. Uh, this film stars Jerry Reed, who is the truck driver in Smokey and the Bandit, and who had appeared in some Burt Reynolds movies uh, like Gator. Uh, but he was a big outlaw country star. He was a big music star. And so he wrote the high rollin', the kick-ass theme song of High Ballin'. And he is cast here as a Canadian. Uh, well, I guess it... it, it don't They're like pretending it's America. They are pretending it's America, but the film is clearly shot in Toronto. The whole film was shot outside of Toronto you see the CN Tower. So I was kind of like willfully reading it as a Canadian film, but you're right. It's kind of like trying to pass itself off I mean, in a very that, AIP way. Like. That, that's actually kind of interesting, not to derail this, but like they do have Toronto license plates throughout. Yes. And I feel Ontario like plates? usually yeah. if they're going to pretend, that's the easiest thing they swap out. So in a way, I almost feel like they're not trying to hide it. It's just an American attitude, but... I, I think this film is schizophrenic, and we'll talk yeah. about we'll talk <laughs> yeah. about that yes. later. But uh, so yes, Jerry Reed plays Iron Duke Boykin, who's this like grizzled old trucking veteran who now has uh, a family and I guess like a little homestead, uh, and he <laughs> is uh, he's getting worn down because there have been a series of violent hijackings of truckers in the area, and truckers are quitting 
or they're going over to King Carroll, the local trucking boss's company. Uh, and of course, you know, our suspicions are aroused immediately. Gee, I wonder if the local trucking baron has anything to do <laughs> with these hijackings. Enter Rain, played by Peter Fonda, doing a sort of like ten times removed distillation of Wyatt's from Easy Rider. Uh, my, he's very chill. Uh, he's got that Fonda chill vibe. Maybe not what was called for in this film, but Rain shows up on his motorcycle in the opening of the movie and reunites with Duke. Uh, he has been away being a stunt man. I couldn't tell if it was for movies or just like Evil Knievel type stuff specifically, but they refer to he's been you know breaking a lot of bones uh, and he's still doing a little soul searching himself, you know. He's evil. Can evil is a truck speak for a cop on a motorcycle. It's all connected, dude. Breaker, breaker. Um, so these guys have reunited, and, and Rain sort of gets entangled in this local uh, consp- trucking conspiracy with Duke, uh, and ultimately, yes, this leads to lots of action set pieces and then sort of. Uh, Convoy-style fighting back against uh, the man. Uh, Should also mention there's a a big subplot, of course, involving a woman pickup played by the great Helen Shaver, who would go on to have a a very illustrious career, uh, including The Oscarman Weekend by Sam Peckinpah and Color of Money by... Scorsese and Desert Hearts and the list goes on and she is from Canada a Canadian legend she's on their walk of fame I looked it up you know um, so she is uh, ooh yeah uh, <laughs> like I think Lucy uh, Peggy Cummings in uh, Hell Drivers could have been could have been given a little more to work with here but uh, she just sort of you know inserts herself into this situation It's sort of like she acts like a truck driver, but she doesn't have a truck. I'm kind of unclear (laughs) what what her job (laughs) is or whatever. Anyway, uh, she, you know, uh, sort of falls in love with Rain, with Peter Fonda, and he's being very like, I'm just Peter Fonda, man, you know? Um, And that sort of develops, you know, over, over the course of the film. And they band together, yes, to fight back against King Carol and his evil henchman led by Harvey, the fake socialist who presents himself as a radical in public, advocating for violent, uh, you know, overthrow of the trucking industry. But in private, he's taking money from the boss and he's offing guys and robbing them. And fun fact, that actor, David Ferry, is one of the police officers or detectives in Boondock Saints. Because I was watching this movie going like, <laughs> how the, f- I know this fucking face and God damn it, he's in Boondock Saints. He's not in a lot of movies. Wow. You know, so put that in your, put that in your, in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah. David, <laughs> David Ferry. That's, uh, yeah, that's highballing. It's got a lot of like country guitars and trucking and, and action and goofs and 90 degree hairpin turns and cars barrel rolling on fire. Uh, It's got that exploitation thing, but again, it has this sort of split personality where it's like very low key a lot of the time that and then all of a sudden it's like an AIP film you know but like yeah. the other scenes don't feel like an AIP film so uh, it's something to, something to chew over and uh, 
yeah, I have mixed feelings on it. I'm glad I watched it. It's a, you know, it's a nice film, I think, in a, in a certain way. It's, like, inoffensive, but uh, we'll get into it. That's, uh, that's High Ballin' from 1978. Thank you. Thank you. It, when you. So when you both sent the pictures of the films, uh, when you sent me the posters, and I saw the High Ballin' one, I'm like, I've, I think I've seen it, or I've seen, like, some of it. And... Um, pretty sure I have it. The film didn't necessarily confirm it, but it was funny because if I can remember correctly, there used to be a VHS rip of it on Amazon prime and Molly and I had it queued up forever. And there was one night we watched white line fever, uh, cause she was on a trucker kick. I think this is pretty early pandemic. And then we thought, oh, well let's follow it up with highball and then we can fall asleep cause it's just a VHS rip. And I think that's what happened. It's funny cause we start highball and, and this restoration is just gorgeous i mean it is it's a fantastic looking copy and 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 looking film generally um well i'll get to that in a minute but it was funny i'm watching it and i'm just like i'm like i don't know maybe i haven't seen this and then it was like halfway through there was a scene i'm like yep i've seen this scene before like oh my god what a restoration can do (laughs) to making a (laughs) film seem just like 100 percent brand new like imagine so like this movie like i'd say more than 50 percent of its appeal is the way it's it looks and feels and like imagining that stripped away it's like you know there's not a lot to hold on to or to even remember um so it was funny revisiting it uh it felt like i was watching it for the very first time and um i mean i guess i we you know broadly one of the reasons i like road movies and one of the reasons i like truck movies is uh it's kind of really difficult to shoot them inside so out of necessity these films have really cool location photography that's why i like road movies and that's why i like movies with trucks we're on the move we're going places and with truck movies especially we've got so many great like trucker bars and dives and and things like that these truckers you know they got their hubs but they're moving around they have their own little subcultures and um that was one of my biggest takeaways from both of these films just enjoying the drives we went on it was funny that in hell drivers it was like this looping cycle of seeing this bleak british countryside with these like steep drop-offs on these cliffs and just carrying around a lot of rocks you know (laughs) and being stuck like going around and around but it's still like there's this bleak really bright black and white beauty to it and then highballing is so lovely because it's shot in a Canadian winter. So it's really snowing. We've got slushy roads and the color is so lush. Just the quality of the light in both of these films I thought was like really special. So I really appreciated that like that was my biggest (laughs) takeaway from both of these truck movies was just enjoying the play of light on the screen. And they have great cinematographers. The uh, highballing was shot by Rene Verzier, who shot Visiting Hours and Rabid and was a stalwart of the Canadian industry. So we've even fucking had him on on the pod before, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You know, so he's got moves. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Hell Drivers has one of the fucking goats, dude. It's Jeffrey Unsworth, who shot 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, whoa. He shot A Bridge Too Far. He shot fucking Zardoz, dude. Like holy shit, and Cabaret, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, I mean, this is one of his earlier films, but a dude who had a a, a very nice career shooting some very beautiful movies. It's a very well lit film in a in a kind of noir way. For again, yeah, I think what strikes me, Andy, about Hell Drivers is you hit on it perfectly. It is both like 
kind of a noir and kind of this sort of like newly emerging realism thing, right? Multiple commentators, you know, in retrospect, were have pointed out that it's like predicting the British new wave. The difference is that these characters aren't uh, transcending their class. They're just trying to hang on to, you know, daily life in a, in a very bleak way. Literally survive. Yes. Just like <laughs> one day at a time. And yeah. it's so stark and the lighting uh, is, is just so expressive throughout and, and really hammers that sort of like doomed feeling uh, throughout. And, the light is good, Ryan, but the the settings are bleak. You know, they're both kind of like, you know, common Commonwealth post war, like kind of deteriorating industry. Even like some of the locations they have in highballing are like, yeah, empty warehouses and these sort of like outskirts of Toronto spaces that are like, where are we? Like, what is this? Now, of course, Hell Drivers is much more like, yeah, like just industrial England. It's just a fucking nightmare. You oh, know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think like that's that's what I really like connected to and, and took away from Hell Drivers. I mean, it, it wastes no time in presenting the sort of like uh, desperation of Stanley Baker's character. He doesn't like come to this job because he's sort of just like looking for a career change or, you know, oh, this seems like a, a good way to make a buck. I mean, like he absolutely uh, has no other options so much so that like he's heard through the grapevine about this very dangerous job that, that, you know, men with, with uh, scant qualifications will, will, you know, be selected for if of course they can pass a very dangerous test in and of itself first, you know, but yeah, I mean the, the, the entry for him into this world is one that is incredibly like foreboding. Like this is not a good environment to, to be in. And, and it, it only gets worse or harder or or more like treacherous from from there. I mean, yeah, this is a this is a bad place to work and uh and and he is 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 almost I, mean, I guess one of the ways that I sort of looked at it it was especially in the way you just kind of described it Ryan is like they're just like hauling rocks around <laughs> yeah. that it's basically like being on a chain gang. But it's yes. like imagine imagine a chain gang on fucking like on meth, on fucking speed. Like that's basically what these guys are doing. They're the dregs of society in this post-war, post-industrial England. Uh, and, and they're, they're taking whatever is available to them. But the idea is very, very clear to us that, that these are all like, you know, outcasts on a certain level. These are all men with problems and a history I think the implication is also very much there to be read that that they're all veterans of World War II. I think you can certainly imply that and you can you can you you directly get that from even the Italian character Gino who informs us that he was a prisoner of war. He fought against the British. He was he was a prisoner of war in England and then the war ended and he was just kind of like, "Well, fuck, what am I going to do now?" and and he's just, you know, 
there. I mean, but what other opportunities does he have for him as this this ex-prisoner of war? Uh, Even he, Red, they say, oh, he's been driving 12 years, which puts that at 1945. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you do the math. Yeah. And I, I read in the Cy Enfield book that there's this idea, too, of like the national service that they had until 1960. So like a lot of you know, lower class British people sort of being drafted and then doing all these tasks. So even the way the guys like interact when they go to their like cafe and it's like, it's like soldier hangout, barracks, you know, shit like, yeah, they, uh, they like to rough house. They like to yell. They like to ruin the local dance, ruin the gala (laughs) dance. Yeah. We'll get into the dance later, but yeah, I mean these dudes, when they like come home to this boarding house that they all share, it's like they wreck the place every night. It seems like you just hear like broken, like breaking glass and like things getting knocked over as like the, the poor landladies just like everybody go to bed. Jesus. It's just, it's so crazy because that, desperation and that desperate quality throughout so much of the film it just i don't know it carries like this insane intensity because you're watching this thing and you're seeing these guys who are so keyed in without like an ounce of apathy because they're so desperate like the fact that they are pushing themselves to the limit to shuttle these big piles of rocks around at breakneck speeds putting themselves at risk just so they can get a little bit more money at the end of the day compared to whether they do you know one less load just constantly keeping track and competing amongst each other because you have that feeling of like they ended up here because they had no other options they had no idea how they fit in or what was next for them it's got that I mean, again it's the same thing as you mentioned with the figure eight racing that's of course the i thought of pit stop that was the first thing i thought of where you have someone who's coming out of jail this is the best thing that was available to them and it's <laughs> brutal it's like yeah. so intense and so risky and they have no choice but to throw themselves into it with like everything they got and again i also think that you know like like pit stop like another uh, movie that i also thought of while watching this the lusty men i think there's also this element that makes sense again if you see them as in some cases, ex-soldiers or ex-criminals or whatever, but they're also just fucking adrenaline junkies, you know? Sure. And this is the perfect job for guys who who went through that stuff and can't just transition back to society to, like, work in some, some like, you know, British bureaucratic office job or, or, or be a shopkeeper or something like that. There's like, an excess of masculinity going around. Oh, my God. I mean, fuck. It's, it's like diesel fumes and testosterone. Like, that is the whole fucking movie. And, yeah, it's, it's like on a certain element, yeah, they are – they're adrenaline freaks and they get a, they get a jazz out of it because – they're laughing. I mean, it, it, we look at it and we're like horrified, but half the time these guys are going through all this crazy shit. They're they're sort of like laughing and and seemingly enjoying the danger that they they find themselves in. But another element that is so important that again, I think makes a lot of sense when you consider some of Cyanfield's background um and his politics. It's it is that these guys are like working this job seemingly together for the betterment of the company, but the company is pitting them against one another. The, the, the competitive element that like, yes, this is a movie about lorry drivers. This is a movie that is got elements of, of British noir, 
but it's also like a fucking racing movie because they are, as you described, right? It's like, who's going to be the top dog? So they're not helping each other. They're working against each other. It's like the ultimate indictment of capitalism in that it's like, yeah, this is what it does to us. It, it puts us in like bad working conditions for shitty pay. And on top of all that, its design is to keep us separated. You know, these guys aren't creating a great big gold convoy to work together, you know, for everybody's benefit. Like they're like trying to sideswipe each other off the fucking road, you know, half and the time. And aren't they competing for something like a golden cigarette case or something well, like that? Well, I mean, that becomes a part of the kind of like the, yeah, the ultra masculine ritual aspect that's also in it where Red, the top dog played by Patrick McGowan as this sort of like Irish yeah, just like like fucking dog. He's so goddamn mean. With got a big scar down his face. Uh, he's the one who I mentioned, you know, doing eighteen trips a day, like by far the most. And he announces to everyone that if they can beat him, he will give them his gold cigarette case worth. Oh, okay. I think yeah. they point out that it's like worth two hundred and forty quid. So you know, he uses that as a as a as a like it's carrying in the stick kind of shit, right? Like I'm gonna push these guys to go crazy, but no one can beat him. No one has ever been able to beat him, but it does like kind of lure them into driving like fucking maniacs. Like every time they, they, they kick off a work day. Yeah. It's so crucial that it's the company that creates these conditions. And it's something that's implicit throughout the film. And then later revealed to be a, a very explicit sort of like conspiracy going on at the, the management level of this company. And yeah, I think it of course speaks to Enfield's politics. He was a very left-wing guy, you know, he, he left the United States because of it. And I saw this as like, yeah, a sort of British example of what Tom Anderson called film gris, you know, the, the sort of like communist noir where there's so much emphasis in this film on like clocking in shots of them clocking in and like the time that's created by capitalism as this pressurized time that's like not real time this is all a construction right uh and yeah the emphasis on that the docked wages the workplace danger even the implication that like the guy whose truck he takes leggy or whatever like he might have got run off the road and killed by these guys you know and that emphasis is there and you watch this film and you're like yes this film is directed by an ex-communist or communist like the what he focuses on um and that's i read in in the cyan field book in an interview he gave he said in comparison to the hollywood versions of this story he prefers quote to be closer to the work is what he said. So like less emphasis on the romance, which is kind of half-baked. And he's like the tools, the, the social, always the material, you know, and like that's constantly coming to the fore in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And there's a spirit there that links both of these films because Highballin' is partially about the struggles of carving out your own path as an independent trucker. Yes. And then being reliant on the company and then all of the loopholes and things like that and the amount of capital you need to be able to invest if you're going to be an independent trucker to even to carry a load. Like, that was something I didn't know. That if you're an independent trucker, you have to buy the load. Oh, yeah. And then you only then make the money after you deliver it, right? So, like, in order to even be able to carry something, 
you need to actually pay for it to buy it from, you know, the company or whatever. But that's the same thing too. There is a conspiracy here. That's sort of the backbone all of Highball and except it's both much more laid back and also kind of farcical because this company has these dudes yes. that are like these assassins that are coming in to pull off these truck heists that they feel like little devils, you know? Well, well, yeah, I mean, it goes to show you too, like those two very different kinds of political takes. I mean, highballing is so much more American, even if it is Canadian, we could maybe just say North American in that spirit, right? Because it's also, you know, it's, 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 it's about the triumph of the individual, you know, that that Mm -hmm. each of us should be independent and an individual and be able to carve out our own existence and the dangers of being part of some sort of, yeah, like monolithic, big kind of, you know, like big trucking, like, no, you don't want to be a part of them. Like, this is about breaking away from all of that, staying independent, whereas like, yeah, I mean, Hell Drivers just makes you go like collective action. Why don't you guys just all refuse to fucking drive? But no, right? Yeah. They, they're they pitted against one another. It's the dangers of that. It's showing you that like, yeah, this is what they're going to do. They're going to exploit you and they're going to turn you against it. They're going to make you look at every other worker as competition, literally, uh, in this case, you know. But yeah, highballing is, again, just this very kind of like American thing about like, could you believe that this, this company wants all these guys to be under their umbrella like isn't that the most evil thing it isn't just that like like you said that they're just like some like shitty company it's that they're they're yeah they've got fucking henchmen and and they're all wearing black you know they're literally killing the competition yeah fun connection uh patrick mcguin has read as the the evil foreman in cahoots with management he wears the black leather gloves and so does harvey uh the head the head honcho henchman uh in high ball and he's got not only all black but he's got the black leather gloves you know no one gets strangled though well maybe stanley baker for a second yeah maybe for a second you know but yeah those scenes are like yeah they're, they're weird i kind of liked them there's the sort of like out of context hijacking stuff at the beginning when it's yeah. like you're not seeing who's doing it they're just you know, it kind of reminded me a, a little bit of kind of like a Friends of Eddie Coyle vibe, at least just like these yes. '70s dopes, like running around with like you know shotguns and the, the you know the the fishnets over their head or whatever. Um, yeah, it is though. Like part of what makes highball and you know, because I, I certainly enjoyed the aspects of it that like we were we were here for. You know, like I mean, fucking Jerry Reed spitting out a bunch of yeah. truckerese. Breaker one nine, breaker one nine. This is the one Iron Duke. Uh, any eighteen wheelers out there ringing my phone? Bring it back. I mean, God damn it! I felt like I needed. Great voice. So, I I mean, yes, yeah, certainly one of the greatest voices of all time. Uh, and I'm a big fan of his music in general, not just the trucking stuff, but. Uh, I love Jerry Reed and and yeah, that's great. But I honestly felt like I needed subtitles for like any time people like picked <laughs> up their fucking CB radio. Oh, it's yeah. like it is it is definitely got like trucker porn elements in in that, you know, of just the 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 colloquialisms, the slang, the terminology that I'm like, I don't understand what the hell they just said. But but everybody seems to think it was good. So I guess they're going to keep on trucking. But like. The movie, like you said, it's like split personalities where it's like, you know, in 
in Hell Drivers, the crime element is so uh, deftly kind of woven into like the aspect of you know the, the the trucking life that we're seeing here on display. But in Highball, and it feels like it was like, well, we got like, uh, how can we make a crime movie in the aesthetic of? A good old like you know good old boys eighteen wheeler kind of you know truck exploitation movie because the movie like gets derailed like constantly from like whatever rhythm it's in by these moments. I mean, there's just an extended sequence. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, where you know we just get like Peter Fond doing like James Bond esque infiltration. <laughs> Commando raid, if you will. Just like climbing on shit. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just like suddenly there's like a 10 minute fucking sequence of him just like sneaking into a building that is like goes on way too long. It's you know? it's outrageous how many shots there are of him like climbing those beams and all that scaffolding. I mean, Marsh, you you said it perfectly, saying that this film is schizophrenic because that's what it is. You think it's one thing and then it kind of pivots in an interesting direction. You're like, "Whoa, this is nuts." And then it abandons it. I mean, we when we were watching it to give an idea of just the effect that Highball and has on you, you know, I was so enamored with the first like 30 minutes and I was like, whoa, hold on. Is this like a masterpiece? Is this restoration revealed something? I mean, there's just some of those images like when they're at the scene of a hijacking late at night and it's snowing and you just the way that the truck lights are lighting the snow and the little bits of red from people's coats. I mean, it's just it's otherworldly. It's so beautiful. And then uh, then it really peaks in the middle. There's just a fantastic set piece that we can talk about a little later, but just involving trucks, explosions, hijacking, and an unbelievably laid-back Peter Fonda during a moment of insane crisis. And we're watching this, and Molly's loving it. She's eating it up. She's electrified. She's like, yeah, Peter, get him. Let's go. This is all feeling good. And then fucking Duke, Jerry Reed is just like not in the movie anymore. They, like, send him away, and then it becomes a Peter Fonda movie, and then it just, like, sucks. Yeah. (laughs) The whole movie deflates. The climax was clearly the middle of this thing, and then there's, like, one thing, like, kind of shoehorned at the end, but it really feels as though the movie pivots and just becomes this boring Peter Fonda star vehicle, when it had, I thought, so much going on. Before yeah, it just that. becomes like a just like a generic action thriller at a certain yeah. point with again the like aesthetics of a trucker movie. Like I know the exact point when it I I just was like, "Oh god." You know, like, "Oh no." Uh they they seemingly like they they tease an epic trucker like climax yeah. where they're like, okay, here's our ticket out. Here's what we got to do. We got to go get this load of booze. We got to go visit this like bootlegger, this like modern bootlegger. We're going to buy booze and we're going to take it down to these like coal miners or something like that. And we're going to make big bucks and they get prepped for it. And they're like, let's do it. We got the plan. We got the time. We got the truck. We got the booze. I mortgaged my house. Like everything is on the line for this epic long haul they need to do. You know, and I'm I'm hearing the music. I'm hearing eastbound down. I'm like seeing, I'm seeing what's coming. And then it's just kind of like the next day. It's like, well, I guess we're not going on the run. Peter Fonda like didn't show up. Well, screw that. And then yeah, it's just like him 
kind of putzing around. <laughs> yeah, for like going to motels, like, climbing on beams. I was so mad, dude. I was like, you teased and built up to like an epic trucker finale, a trucker showdown, like Mad Max shit. I'm like, everyone's going to be heading for this truck with this booze. And then that truck with booze doesn't even get on the fucking road. It just, it's just like, uh, yeah, it's something, screw that. Well, he gets shot in the belly. But yeah, yeah, he gets yeah, shot yeah, in the belly. Yeah. But no, it's no good. Yeah, it's not a run. No. Where's the run? There's no run. Where's the highball? That's like what they refer to. They're like, oh, we're going to highball it. And then they never do. <laughs> yeah, you know? they, just, they don't. I mean, yeah, like, look, that's that's it lost me along the way as well, because it's like you said, you think maybe this is kind of a convoy thing. Maybe, yeah, there's like little populist sort of overtones as as any trucker movie should have, theoretically. But then it's like, there is no collective action. And it's not for the same reasons that there's no collective action in the Hell Drivers, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, in this, they get everyone and they do basically nothing. They get into like a, a brawl. Outside the where, I mean, it was like jumping to the end, but like they get into a brawl and we're just once again, it's like we're back to hero cinema. It has this has nothing to do with collective action. This has nothing to do with the truckers fighting back. This is just like Peter Fonda and Jerry Reed win, you know, or Peter Fonda wins, you know? Yeah. Uh, It just sells out like halfway through, halfway through. Which is such a bummer because, God, it just starts so great. The beginning of this movie I love so much when they're at this trucker diner and there's truck shit all over the wall. There's signs that in the shapes of trucks that say for professional truckers only, you know, things like that. We've got um, I can't remember the what's the woman's name, the character? Helen Shaver. Yeah, when we're introduced to pickup, she goes up to the counter and she's like, Howdy, pickup. What do you need, honey? Mm. Well, what I need, I can't get here. So I'll have a can of soda and a piece of jerky. And I'm like, ah, yes, here we go. Like, this is what I'm talking about. Trucker shit. Yeah, and then there's like a fucking tire iron battle right outside. You know, when Peter Fonda gets in like a low-key, you know, dick measuring contest with this other dude who's scorned by pickup or he's like mocked by her. So he tries to prove himself and then Fonda like pins him to a wall with two tire irons and you think there's going to be like a sword fight. That stuff's all so good. That really feels like great truck exploitation. You know, all these guys goofing around, using all their truck gear, saying their goofy lingo at their little truck hangout spots. This is that that romantic trucker cinema. Wow, you know, Hell Drivers is the, the kind of the exact opposite. Like, I like this like nightmare scenario of being stuck on the road. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like as Marsh pointed out, like Enfield sort of from that interview, very illuminating saying like I was I wanted to be with the workers. It's like the romantic subplot in in highball and just really like invades the goddamn movie also at a certain point. And it just feels again so like, oh, they wanted to get a scene where Helen Shaver's basically naked. Cool. You know, that's some AIP shit right there. You know, like, can we get that? And Honestly, one of like the the wackiest, craziest. It almost felt like a spoof. The the like the love scene between her and yeah, Peter the Fonda. The motel scene. Yeah, the motel scene. But it's like in Hell Drivers, you know, Lucy, who is you know the 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 main you know romantic element of the film, she's like throwing herself all over Stanley Baker, and he's like 
get away from me. I'm trying to stay alive here. You're going to get me fucking killed. You know, he like doesn't want anything to do with her for, for 90% of the movie. He's basically just ducking her and avoiding her. He sees her as nothing but trouble, which is of course a very kind of noir thing. You know, this guy's been on the inside. He is, he's, he's worldly. He can kind of recognize a, a femme fatale, a, a woman who's, who's going to bring just bad vibes all around. And perhaps he saw the film gun crazy where she gives uh, one of the great femme fatale ish oh, performances. Her? Yeah, oh. baby. And that's like, you know, I loved seeing hell drivers because I really only know her from gun crazy and it's always weird because she has an insane accent in that movie because she's like trying not to be like British. But like, I think she still maybe is in like the text of the film. She just sounds insane. Yeah. But then you see her in England and you're like, ah, this is, yeah, this works. You know, I mean, I look, <laughs> I love her in Gun Crazy, but there's something off about it. You know, mm-hmm. her slight like Britishisms, you know? Yeah. I guess definitely. that's part of it, but. Love her, love her. But you're right, Andy. It's like, I was thinking for a while, I'm like, did Stanley Baker have an awakening in prison, you know? (laughs) Uh, Does he really love Gino, you know? like, I mean, there definitely is like a vibe between him and Gino that that I I sort of picked up on. Yeah, I I think like the film is explicitly connecting them as outsiders, but there may be, there may be more. They are very, they are very quickly uh, tender to one another. I mean, dude, the, the most, I feel like sensitive and tender Stanley Baker is in the movie is to him of all people. I mean, even when he's with her, he kind of just like gives into her advances, but their introduction to each other is a beautiful like scene. And again, talk about the lighting, the way that whole sequence goes down where Stanley Baker's like in his in his room in this boarding house, just, you know, being the loner guy. He's not mixing with the the roughhousing lorry drivers who are tearing apart this fucking boarding house. And Gino, who's come back with the rest of the crew, like enters this empty room, which we subsequently learn was the room of the driver who has died. But Gino has been using this empty room as his own little like Catholic sanctuary. <laughs> it's got like a little little Catholic altar set up. And when he enters the room, he just sort of like lights a candle and Stanley Baker's just laying on the bed in the darkness, just like watching him do a, like a Catholic like ritual or something like that. And then Gino discovers him and it's just so low key light. It's just such great, like low key lighting. And, and there's this really strange kind of moment where Gino's like, Oh damn, like, excuse me, I'll get out of here. What are you doing here? Who are you? Where's my room? Ah, mamma mia, you're giving me a fright. (laughs) You just arrived, huh? Yeah. Capito. I come in, you lie there, you say nothing. You uh, have a good laugh, huh? No? You know, there is so much noise. You hear the noise, huh? This room is empty. I use her for, uh, like a church, you know. Uh, You want to know I should move with these things? Oh, that's okay. Come in when you like. Yeah, and that like sort of mirrors in a sense too the really like heartbreaking cut later in the film when, you know, because Gino, of course, is hopelessly in in love with 
uh, with Lucy and she's decided, you know, she's told him once and for all, like, look, Italian guy, I'm not interested. You I don't know? like foreign films. <laughs> yeah, I don't like foreign films. This is never going to work out. <laughs> and she goes to, you know, again, getting, getting towards the end, but like she goes to, uh, Tom and he's in you know working on his truck in the garage at night and it's lit by a single like work lamp and she approaches him and and yes they start like making out and he just gives in and he he turns the work lamp off and it goes dark and then it's like Gino in the dark bedroom alone you know like crazy is really amazing Gino's the most like tragic character in the whole film oh like God. he is just is his journey is such but so heartbreaking I know. because he is the nicest guy the the romantic guy the 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 man who in spite of all the horrible things that have clearly happened to him in his life tries to ultimately like keep the peace see the good reach out for for connection wherever he can find it and just gets his hand slapped away by life at every turn it's 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 so brutal i was really hoping for a scene with him and tom at the cinema sharing popcorn you know i was trying to wonder like it's 1957 and he's like there's an italian movie playing like let's go let's go i was like what is what is he wanting to go see in 1957 i was like is he taking him to some like dececa movie like some neo-realist thing you know i got it knights of kabiria oh of course yeah, yeah. that's so sweet yeah that would have been awesome <laughs> just like him in knights of kabiria eating popcorn that's great. yeah i did wish we we got to go to the cinema but it reminds me that there's another really surprising early role here in this film another character who's hopelessly in love with the wrong person and that's jill the cafe waitress played by Jill Ireland. That's right. Bronson's baby. But in this, I wow. think, is where she got married first to David McCallum. Ah, that was when her. she was a brunette? Yeah, when she was a brunette. That's why you probably didn't notice her, Ryan. Then before, I was going to say, know. I had no idea. Oh, you didn't? I thought you were going to be so excited because, you know, yeah, we love Jill. We've had Jill on before yeah. in the assassination episode. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jill Ireland, like, to be perfect, like, I don't even find her, like, all that recognizable in a funny way, you know? She kind of has that, like, blends in with other starlets look to her. It's so, because even when I'm looking at the picture of her and Hell Drivers, I'm like, there's no world. You would have had to tell me. Like, if you're like, who is that? I would have been like, I've got no fucking clue. <laughs> That's neat, though. Her with yeah. her with Bond and his huge fucking eyebrows. My God. Sean oh my Connery's God. eyebrows have to be the biggest they've ever been in this film. So much wavy hair, too. And I love that he's just kind of like the life of the party. He's kind of just this, like, good good old boy Johnny. And there's a, there's a, a shot or a scene when they're in the cafe like midway through the film and he is just like commandeering the jukebox in the deep space and you can't not just like be not pay. there's like some sort of like it's like dusty and, and tom are having like a, a heartfelt conversation over the foosball table i'm like look at connery dancing like in the background oh yeah <laughs> i mean he is 
is clearly like bursting out of the seams of being a supporting man. Like I, like I said, I mean, this is like, you can see it, which is very cool that like Connery's like, no, I'm going to be the fucking star. I'm going to be the next Stanley Baker. That's me for sure. Same thing at the dance, like in some of the group scenes at the, like the, the gala dance in the local town. Like you can totally see Connery just like tearing it up with some of the chicks on the dance floor. Certainly, you know, pre-bond, so he's not he's not very graceful. It's, yeah, it's you know. Well, it's funny you you guys mentioning just we're talking about actors' early screen appearances. Apparently, I cause I didn't even recognize him. I only saw this after the fact. But Michael Ironside in his second film appearance is in High Ballin'. Yeah, I saw the name in the credits, and I honestly was like, "Who the fuck was he in the movie?" Like, I right. have no memory. Yeah. Of who he was. In that he's movie. no. He's no one. Um, I. I assume maybe he's one of the robbers, but he. I. I, I scrolled back through the film like three times trying, trying to, find, to find Michael Ironside and being like, who could he possibly be? Because yeah. he has a name. Is in the credits. He's Butch. And I'm yeah. like, who the hell is yeah. Butch? I think he's. Well, yeah. I think he's just one of the henchmen who's like doesn't even get a shot with his mask off honestly <laughs> like because i was going through the warehouse shootout not one of those guys yeah. you know maybe he popped up for maybe he's the guy on the truck fighting peter fonda maybe i you mean you don't it's, see it's, his face you know yeah i feel like he just yeah has to be one of those guys that was in the diner or in the bar just kind of sitting around has no lines that that's my instinct yeah yeah blink and you miss him or don't <laughs> don't blink and you miss him, you know, Michael Ironside. Where, where are so you? Did, did either of you like ever wanna? Did you ever have a period in your life, even albeit like very briefly, like even if it's just a day, where you're like, I'd like to be a trucker. Have you ever uh, wanted yeah, that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. You, you yeah. know what? I I was a trucker um, many many years ago. Uh, this is very low low level trucking, but many years ago. Uh, I would drive for my, my dad's sprinkler company when their driver would go on vacation in like the mid 2000s. But I just drove a pickup. But it was literally like they would pack the pickup full of pipe, you know, and just be like, take this to this job site. Uh, I had to deliver a, a water pump to the Floorsheim Shoe Company, and it weighed like thou, you know, thousands of pounds. And we Whoa. had to push, we had to push it off the back of this pick, you know, the Acme Fire Sprinkler pickup truck that I drove around. And honestly, maybe the best job I've ever had because I just drove around listening to sports radio, smoking cigs drinking McDonald's coffee and then I would like show up at a job site and meet a bunch of like really insane blue collar guys and they would say the damnedest things you know they would say the damnedest things uh, I yeah. mean yeah like there was the yeah there was I was delivering pipe to university of, like a university of Chicago site and this guy you know one of the one of the fitters just was you know the girls yeah I'm just like bro dude I don't want to hear about this you're like 50. <laughs> You know, how many how like, many runs do you think you did in total? Wow, gee, yeah. I mean, I I worked there two or three times for like a week or two at a time, so I've probably got like a like a month of trucking. Nice uh, city to urban trucking, but I used to go out to the burbs to pick up pipe. Uh, <laughs> this like huge warehouse out in the burbs somewhere. It was crazy. What was I doing? I was like it's, twenty. You know. Well, awesome. You know. I mean, now yeah. it's now it's my turn to one up yeah, here. Yeah. But you know, I might have, 
I might have told this story on the pod, but I basically was a hell driver yeah. myself for a, for a whole summer when I was a a truck driver for the Kennecott Brothers Flower Company. And I had to drive box trucks around loaded with wholesale flowers. And we had to do uh, a similar kind of thing where it was like you had to do a lot of runs through the course of a day. You had to do like the morning runs, the afternoon runs, and then the late runs. And you, if you fucked around, you found out. So they, they knew all the routes so they would know, like, if okay, if you're going to Carousel Flowers, that should be a that should be a 30 minute run right there. You know, you shouldn't be out there long. And of course, lots of drivers would, you know, game the system. You'd figure out ways to go buy your lotto tickets or get lunch at Heavenly Bodies because apparently they had great chicken wings at the strip club out there around O'Hare. But yeah, I mean, I drove those. I drove big, gnarly, twisted fucking box trucks and. Um, some of the flowers, I mean, it was like wages of fear shit at times because you'd have like uh, 500 gladiolas in buckets of water and, and you had to secure them in your truck. And these old gnarly box trucks on Chicago roads, man, like, I mean, my first run was a disaster. I hit the brakes way too hard. I'd never driven a truck like that. Yeah. And, and like a thousand flowers and buckets of water dumped over <laughs> in the truck. The water just came rushing up into the cab. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to get fired on my first fucking day. They had a big laugh about it at the warehouse, but but nothing was more tense or high octane than when you had to deliver orchids because orchids are very, very delicate and you had to be very, very careful with those and very quick with those because if you look at an orchid the wrong way, that shit's going to die on your yeah. ass. You your know? own personal nitroglycerin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was uh, very tense wow. at times. So. Yeah, I've never driven anything bigger than like a 15-foot U-Haul. I think it'd be pretty fun to try. I remember when I was young, because I God, the episode must have aired in the late 90s, but I remember like when I would go through the Simpsons box sets, there's that episode where Homer is like driving a truck and falls asleep at the wheel and it ends up all being fine and the guy tells him like these things these puppies basically drive themselves now like they got all these sensors in here like that's how you got home safe because he takes like sleeping pills on accident or something like that yeah. and I, for the longest time i like thought that was true you know because i always thought i because i get sleepy sometimes when i'm driving and i've always thought like that would be my curse like i could never really be a truck driver because i'd get sleepy and i always wonder like well how do truck drivers stay awake but for the longest time i thought because of the simpsons i was like well from what i understand you know these puppies they basically drive themselves <laughs> yeah it's called speed yeah you know? right. there's a yeah. lot of truck there's a lot of trucker country songs that like literally reference them taking like yeah speed and little white pills and shit mm -hmm. like that you know i mean though now that you bring it up just since we're just you know we're talking trucks on truck week glory <laughs> yeah. uh, jamming yeah you know what's kind of sad is on a certain level that this is a whole uh you know it, it already is like a, a a sort of like dying job in the the you know um, it's at risk the, yeah yeah, it, it's big time. And it is my uncle who works, you know, he's the car, 
the car salesman, you know, he's like a big wig at Ford for a while. And, and he was the one who informed me that one of the, the areas that is investing very heavily in the self-driving, like automotive research area are like trucking companies because, yeah. you know, he was basically saying in like the next 15, 20 years, semis are going to be one of the first big areas you're going to see them push for self-driving technology and they, they they have this whole plan to completely like revolutionize the road by creating lanes separate lanes just for like self-driving semi trucks to just go and and so they're inventing trains <laughs> yeah they're basically <laughs> yeah they're, they're basically like you know reinventing trains with self-driving automotive technology but but, but we can't have high speed rail in this country you yeah. know because Incredible. he was telling me that like a part of it is and again this ties into shit that Cy Enfield would be very concerned about or is clearly very concerned about is that you know from the 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 trucking companies and the people who pay for shipping like the most expensive part of the process is paying the drivers you know that that truck drivers used to be it used to be a very a very lucrative job to have if you were a long haul truck driver you could make yeah. a really good living yeah. that way Hoffa was in charge yeah man i mean <laughs> and cuz it's know. just like that shit's really bad for you I, like i mean maybe this is a myth but isn't it like you drive trucks for so long especially back in the day that like it would like fuck up your organs like they would be like in the wrong spots because you just get jumbled up for for years on end yeah i mean you're you're just sitting all day and your body's going like 70 miles an hour for for days on end yeah, yeah it's 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 brutal and then yeah they're they're taking speed and drinking you know gallons of coffee to stay up and you know partly because the 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 faster you deliver the 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 more likely you are to be able to run more loads and get paid bonuses and and all that kind of stuff yeah. so yeah yeah, it's it's a it's a tough life and and we 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 respect it here on the podcast that's oh, for yeah. sure beat beat on yeah. hong kong which i think is also part of what i loved about hell drivers because it's sort of like they it's like the exact like inverse of like long haul trucking this is basically yeah. just like <laughs> yeah. you know they're just going like down the road and back but they're doing it all day long like you said in these like vicious cycles it's like it's like sisyphus you know they're just like yeah I really roll i mean quite literally like rolling boulders up hills and then and then having to like just go back the other way and roll it again well you know they're kind of like sisyphus and highballing too because they can't leave the town you know I without suppose, getting yeah. getting assaulted and turning back you know <laughs> they could never have their big run yeah you know what a, a self-driving truck can't do it can't protect itself from a bunch of hijackers that are tr trying to really fuck you up because i do really love that sequence of the film when they're they're being hijacked and they're carrying like a bunch of race cars or demolitions yeah yeah and that's like when you mentioned marsh in your introduction how peter fonda is really chill perhaps too chill like that's the scene that I was, of course, thinking of. It's so fucking funny because he's in the cab with with Duke and his son, Tanker, who we got to talk about. But when the hijackers are coming and they're just open firing on them and Tanker's like, what? What is going on? And Peter Fonda just so relaxed. He's like, I think we're being shot at, Tanker. Mm -hmm. Like, you should probably get down under the cab there. Hold on now. And then he just, again, so chill. 
you know, probably pretty stoned, is just climbing on the, this truck. And I that sequence is so cool when he's just like letting loose these figure eight racing cars as they collapse on top of the hijackers behind them. That, that's the kind of thing that just doesn't work as well anymore now that cars are all plastic, you know, when they're those loud, sharp metal cars like that the that 70s crash when you drop one of those things on another car is it's delightful yeah especially when you light them on fire first <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah when you suddenly have to turn them all into like you know fireballs as well you know these like improvised explosive devices if you will yeah i did have a thought during that sequence though that like like is he going to be like responsible for paying for right, like, right. Yeah. And that's, cars. that was very they, confusing. They yeah. just trashed, you know, they just dumped on the road. Like that happened several times in highball and where again, it sort of like pretends this is like a movie about money and, and you know, like commerce, but like, it's not at all because it doesn't follow through with any of these threads where it's like, Oh yeah. Like it's so dis disadvantageous to be an independent trucker. And it's like, yeah, these guys would be fucked. They would be in jail <laughs> yeah. for what they did to those cars, for what they did to that load. Even if they were like, well, we were being shot at. You think the trucking company cares? Like, no, of course not. <laughs> They're going to be like, so what did you do? It's like, well, I, I started dumping gasoline on them and I kicked them off the rig, you know, to, to <laughs> blow up at the guys chasing us. But I imagine the people probably would have been like, it would have been better if you just gave them the truck yeah. you know they, they probably wouldn't have blown up all the cars we could have just had the cops go after them you know but you destroyed them for seemingly like n no reason because it was crazy <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> and you know it just in it, it tanker's involvement in all of this i can't stop thinking about it because early in the film it's planted that like they're when they hear there's been another hijacking and they're gonna like go on a run to go check in on these guys it's like the middle of the night at the house when duke gets this call and his son tanker's like well what the f dad come on what the heck like you're supposed to take me on a ride you promise next time you take me on a ride he's like oh it's gonna be dangerous you know N next time i promise i promise next time and like he makes good on that promise yeah. to go like on this long drive with peter fonda and his son tanker but i can't get over this it's like these hijackers are clearly like a scourge on these truckers that people are getting hijacked left and right doesn't that seem as the, like where everyone's like i don't want to truck anymore like fucking these guys got assault rifles and they're killing our guys mm -hmm. it's like under no circumstances do you bring tanker on a ride until like this shit cools down after a couple months or even years i don't know that was nuts to me that he's like well i you know i promised i have to take tanker with me well, it's like, he's a rugged ass man you know yeah. you, you know you're not yeah no, i mean sorry. that's like because yeah. the they're, they're both pretty chill about it but in two kind of different ways like clearly yeah fonda stone but jerry reed is just built different because once they're shooting <laughs> jerry reed's take which is also pretty chill is just to say son we're in a heap of trouble. Like he recognizes yeah. the danger, <laughs> but he's a good old boy. You know, there's no, there's no use in panicking in that moment. Of course. You know? of Certainly course. not in front of your son who you're trying to teach, 
you know, how to be a man. I mean, you named your son Tanker, for Christ's yeah. sake. You no, know? it's incredibly noble that he didn't freak out in the face of danger. I just mean the decision to well, bring Tanker uh, yeah, along. Of course, it's a terrible decision. Look at that kid, too, <laughs> you know? My big, actually, like, my big issue with that scene, which is which is perfect outside of this one element, is that Jerry Reed is giving color commentary as if he can see. Give him hell, son! What's going on on the truck? And I was like, what the fuck? This is so weird. And, you know, he's like, try, what? I don't yeah. even know. Just no, that, I whole, that they, whole thing, I was like, this is so weird. This is a well, they got, they got good mirrors, no you know? He could probably no, see they a lot of it. not that good. Like, he's, yeah, like Mark said, he's like dictating every single thing. <laughs> That's true. That is happening. As if he's watching it, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like, you can't see directly behind. You're right. I mean, that's the whole right. point of semis. Yeah. They have horrible blind spots everywhere. <laughs> and they're like in the first level, like... I mean, yeah, no, no, of no course sense. you're, 100% but there's a lot right. of, there's a lot of shit that just like doesn't make a lick of sense, you know? And that's what, like I was referencing too about the, the sex scene, you know, like the motel scene, because this has like, honestly, it's like a Mel Brooks. It is, it is a Mel Brooks joke. It's in blazing saddles. Like she and, and Peter Fonda pick up and, and rain. They leave this bar after like, again, like kind of a hilarious like bar fight. Uh, people just immediately like being like, they're like literally trying to just like drag her away like a caveman to like have sex with her or whatever. And, uh, and they fight and they get out of there. And then he's like, okay, let's go to the motel. Like, okay, finally, we're going to, we're going to consummate this, this romance that's been building. And she's just wearing like her casual, you know, pickup gear. She's just throughout the whole movie had tight jeans and like a little sweater on and stuff like that. And then she goes to the motel and she's waiting for Peter Fonda. And then she's like, she gets naked. But then in the next cut, she's wearing like a showgirl like it's like Outfit. a gold corset. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like gold, like shiny gold lingerie and like <laughs> boots and garters and shit. And it's the Mel Brooks joke from Blazing Saddles where she's like, allow me to slip into something a little bit more comfortable. And it's like the most uncomfortable looking <laughs> like yeah. negligee you've ever seen in your life. Like, Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that from the beef jerky eater. <laughs> no, like yeah. was she wearing that? Yeah, what's the implication there? Right, you know? like what the fuck is going on here? I mean, like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. And again, I want to just relitigate the whole like, oh, is it Canada or America thing? Like, here's why I'm like, no, it's America. Because when they reference driving, they reference like one of their routes is they they reference American uh, uh, cities, don't they? When yeah, they're talking Baton about Baton Rouge, yeah, is they, where they're going to drive. They're uh, going to Baton Rouge, so there's no way they'd be like, "Well, the hall's from Toronto to Baton I Rouge." Mean, it could be. It's a long haul. I, I mean, I, I guess you know, maybe, but I mean, it's visibly winter where they are, so can't be that close to Baton Rouge. Yeah, you know? yeah, but I, I, I feel like it's, it's, you know. Well, I mean, I, again, it's probably one of those things where this is just an assumption, but maybe the script was of course written with the idea of it taking place in america and then they just decided to shoot in canada and not disguise it so like but i mean i do actually think a, a run from toronto to baton rouge is like not unrealistic yeah the only issue though also for me is that jerry reed is the least canadian man yes. that has probably ever lived or existed you know yes. of course and, and peter fonda 
Yeah, I mean, I would buy Peter Fonda more as a Canadian than than Jerry Reed. You know, Peter Fonda is always very polite. You know, <laughs> that's true. There he's are a, he's a nice guy. There are quite a few nice Canadian faces throughout the movie. A lot of the extras and some of the side characters are clearly very colorful people. But you really can't beat the faces. Uh, in Hell Drivers, you know, all those actors are so distinct. And it is, you know, again, back to the idea of them as this sort of like group. Uh, they're all like different, like British nationalities too, right? There's like Scottish guy, an Irish guy, a Welsh guy. It's that whole like sort of microcosm uh, of them. Where was I going with this? Faces. Like- yes, faces. Oh, my God. My favorite face. Is is Dusty, who's played by I gotta look this guy's name up, because uh, I love him. Sid James, who very famously was in like Carry On and shit, but I know him from Lavender Hill Mob, one of my favorite British films, and he's one of the bumbling thieves who teams up with Alec Guinness to rob the armored car, and that he just has that like craggly, busted ass face, you know? Oh yeah, just. Something so like mid twentieth century Britain about his fucking look, you know. Yeah, these are these are not. I mean, Connery aside, and maybe David McCallum aside, these are not handsome men. These guys are all like deranged, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, they they are wearing the aisles on their face. I do think it is important to like point that out, though, as you as you mentioned that like yeah, these are also all guys in England that come from areas that are often looked down upon yeah. by certainly people from from London, you know, a Welshman, a Scotsman, and of course like the most villainous guy being an Irish guy, you know, like yeah, McGowan leaning into it. Yeah, know? yeah, of course, you know, but I I think that's an important point, and they do at times even like reference this very pointedly like where they're all from and and making comments and and when he mentions yeah and and obviously that's like might be lost on a lot of like american viewers but like you know even when when stanley baker mentions that he's from like wales they like make fun of wales they're like us where you from mate around that's up north somewhere go on can't you tell a good welshman when you hear one cardiff in it mate Near there, a place called Blind Sacker. That's a horrible disease. (laughs) Now you've got the hiccups. (laughs) Give him some water. Like for the Brits, (laughs) this is like a big thing, you know? It's like there's like a tier, it's a class system, and these guys are in the lower classes in part because. They are from the provinces. And They're from the outskirts. against each other. And yeah. yeah, in the Commonwealth, pitted against one another, for sure. My favorite guy in Hell Drivers is definitely the dude who teaches Tom how to drive around, like the, the lay of the, the land. Mechanic, yeah. Yeah, well, especially just on that first drive where he's, you know, telling him, make sure you, you never let the speedometer go below 30, just keep going. Then they enter on that stretch with a lot of blind curves on this one-way road, and Tom says, you know, suppose we see someone, and that guy's like, ah, suppose we don't. <laughs> he's wearing a fucking bowler hat. I love yeah. that guy. Didn't flinch. <laughs> no. I mean, he's going, he's going like incredibly fast at a certain point, and Stanley Baker, very clearly nervous, is like, "Going too fast? No, we're not. We're going dandy. Step on it, boost it up." You know, like I love it. And then the casual drop at the ending from him too, where he's like, 
oh yeah, I don't drive anymore. My license was revoked by the cops, you know? <laughs> like, I'm clearly a, considered a dangerous man on the road, so I'm not allowed to drive anymore. And that's your teacher in this fucked up world that we're in. Which also, there's like a really subtle moment when Stanley Baker is first like even applying for the job and Cartley, the the sort of villainous owner of this company or manager of the company, is looking at his driving record and says, No, no speed like no speeding tickets. And and Stanley Baker's like, Yeah, isn't that a good thing? And the implication I think yeah, is no. that he's like we're looking for like, you know, crazy motherfuckers here, you know, and if you don't have any speeding tickets, I don't have any proof that you're, 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 you know, a high octane kind of guy. And I was wondering, you know, what they were going to sort of reveal as his past because he's so, you know, he doesn't tell anyone about his past. And then we learn, yes, he's been in prison, but we learn, too, that he was presumably a getaway driver and, uh... A little robbery of some kind. And uh, I love that little detail because you know me. I'm a heist guy. And one thing I know about British heist films is that no one appeared in more of them than Stanley Baker. And he's like always the leader of the crew. Uh, I mean, he was huge in the 50s, of course. That's why he's the lead in a film with Sean Connery, you know. Uh, but he is the classic heist ringleader. So it's nice to have that little like, yeah, he used to be a heister. I'm like, I know. I've seen it in all the films. He's always robbing stuff. So <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. for British audiences, I think that's part of it too is like, seeing Baker in, in a different light or almost seeing it as an extension of like what happened to all the other characters, you know, when they got out of prison or whatever. And his, you know, like guilt, right? Because yes. that we kind of get that. And I, I, again, I, I think it's the way it's handled. It's, it's so, it's so subtle. Like, and, and I really appreciate that, that you don't necessarily get this big, like exposition dump about everything because when he goes to London to visit his brother, we, we very, you know, pointedly see that his brother is is on crutches and has great difficulties walking now and when the mom returns after this sort of brother reunion uh she's like get get the fuck out of here we don't want anything from you and she implies that the reason his brother is so fucked up physically now is because of Stanley Baker. Yeah, the so I think accident that they never explain. Right. The the as you're describing that it's like they were both in perhaps on this this heist gone wrong and Stanley Baker like ate the charge but but his brother got away but is now crippled for life because of it, you know? Like there's a lot of darkness like in everyone's souls that is only just kind of vaguely hinted at. You know, it's, 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 yeah, it's great. You know what, where else there's darkness, uh, the village dance, you know, <laughs> and that's a great scene in, in hell drivers. And again, it's almost like a classic war film scene where here's all the truck drivers, you know, these roughnecks and here's polite society. And, oh, yeah. and we see the, the, the uptight middle class and it's like an Adam Curtis, like clip, you know, all these people dancing and it's all very chaste and British. And then, yeah, here come the bad boys. And like, I didn't think they behaved too badly until, like, yes, the, the huge brawl that happens. But <laughs> I think that's, again, the Enfield touch. It's like it's turned so where it's like, no, 
the people are the assholes, not the truck drivers. Like, yes, they're being rowdy, but like, have they really done anything bad? And like, no. Where have I been? I was told my old man wanted to see me in the pub opposite. Wasn't he there? No, he wasn't. So I looked in all the pubs just to make sure. That's funny. Must have been some other bill I was told to look for. <laughs> yeah, maybe you invented the whole story so you could walk off with my girl. That's right. You've had a good drink now, insult me. A man in my position taking care of your girl. You're lucky I didn't charge up any time. Peace <laughs> work rates. Not really. They're just fucking around. They're being funny. No. You know? But then, with the slightest provocation, as you described, <laughs> they do then yes. completely destroy <laughs> the goblin yeah. dance. Magoon oh. puts a, a bass drum through a guy's head. <laughs> and there's one detail in that brawl that I loved, which is it cuts to a wide, and the musicians on stage are holding up their sheet stands like shields. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're like so afraid. And then, yes, this also leads to like a massive rupture within the squad because Stanley Baker ditches the brawl when the cops show up yeah, and everyone, you know, he doesn't want to, and then no one knows that. And so they're just like, you coward. And then they all hate him and basically try to kill him for the rest of the rest mm-hmm. of the movie, except and, for Gino. And again, that's something that I really fucking loved about like, yeah, just the writing and the character development because in that moment, that's like the closest they've gotten to all kind of now being a unit. Like they've kind of accepted Stanley Baker. He's taken his licks, but he's earned like a grudging respect for being a good driver that's close to overtaking Red. But then when he abandons them in that moment, like Red looks genuinely hurt. Like you we're, we're a fucking team. Like, yeah, we compete against one another, but it's like also us versus the world. And when he flees, it's like this unforgivable act. And then as they're relentlessly fucking hazing him and bullying him afterwards. And yeah, like maybe just trying to fucking get him killed. I kept thinking like, why doesn't Stanley Baker just say, guys, you know, I'm an ex-con, you know, like I had to fucking run, but he won't and he doesn't because also in this ultra like brutal, ruthless capitalist world, it's like you can't give anybody leverage over you. I was like suddenly having this realization, like he can't tell Red that he's an ex-con because then Red is going to use that shit against him. He's going to weaponize it. So he has to just swallow it, swallow his pride and take his fucking licks. You know what that reminds me of? Being blacklisted, you know? <laughs> and I know that Enfield had a had a very hard time getting work. I mean, Hollywood wouldn't touch him, which meant that he was off limits for co-productions. And it nearly ruined his career until he got some some low budget stuff and that led to this was, you know, a much this was like one of the biggest films, the biggest film he'd done in England. And it sort of set him on a path. But he later I read he went back to the States to testify to HUAC in 1958. And so he also like got freed and was able to like work for Columbia because he did that. But then all his old like left pals were like, he betrayed us, even though everyone he named had already been named and blacklisted. So he thought like, if I name guys that have already been named, I'm just like, I'm just getting out of jail, like no big deal. And people were not happy about that, yeah. you know? Uh, but it fucked his whole life up. I mean, the guy moved to England because of an association, his past, you know, and his inability to get work. So there's a lot of, 
a lot of heart and soul there, just like Dassin and like Rafifi, you know, playing the snitch or whatever. Oh, for like, sure, yeah. Those guys were obsessed with like you know grind grinding the the, the axe for the for the blacklist in these British films. Definitely Lucy too, you know. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I have a theory. Yeah, about Hell Drivers. I love McGowan. You oh, know? I love McGowan. McGowan. I love him so much. Columbo legend, we all know that. The prisoner, we know it, we love it. And one thing just like hit me like a lightning bolt during Hell Drivers. And it's when Stanley Baker figures out the conspiracy, he confronts the boss, and he's basically like, fuck you, I'm taking over, you corrupt motherfuckers. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, But from now on, we're getting all the money that's coming to us. Every penny of it. Listen, Yapley! Now listen, wait a minute, damn you. Now look here. You're a clever boy in the Grand Drive, but I've seen it all along. I can get you a corner on this. It'll double your wages. A lot better than a bonus. Tom, listen! Listen, Tom. I can make things much easier for you here. Okay. And I'll take over number one. I'm the new number one. You know? And I was like, that's like from the prisoner. Yeah. Which obviously hasn't been created yet. And then I started to wonder, you know, maybe. Maybe some of the seeds of the prisoner are here with McGowan and this like competition who's gonna be the new number one the new number two numbering you know? numbers the dude. numbers dude and that's such a big part of the movie is the truck numbers oh, and yeah. McGowan's number one and stanley baker's number 13 unlucky 13 the dead man's car yeah, you know yeah, and dude. the car numbers and a switcheroo that happens with gino inadvertently leads to the death of you know red, red and cartley right but it's all who's going to be the new number one? And I was like, dude, this is McGowan theory, you know? Like, you are number six. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a number, I'm a free man. Yes. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. But like, you can see this whole movie like through the lens of the prisoner and vice versa, you know? I, dude, I love it. <laughs> I fucking love it. I want to throw that to, I want to throw that to Alex Cox, who's written a great book on the prisoner. I'm going to, I'm going to present your theory to him. Please. I'm going to draft the email tonight, you know, get his take <laughs> on it. Cause there's very clearly in my mind, you know, uh, that Alex Cox has seen hell drivers. No doubt it about seems it. Seems likely. As a British lad, he would have had to have seen this movie at some point. You know, something else uh, that I was thinking was, was again, like, Pit Stop. And, like, I just kept going back to Pit Stop and being like, Hell dude, yeah. he had to fucking see Hell Drivers as well. Like, I mean, that is just such, it is such a, there's so many similarities to the structure, yeah. the form, the, the, the beats of the movie, the entry to the world, the, the older guy, you know, giving you the, the lessons on how to drive, like, all that kind of shit. I mean, which is... Obviously, again, like tropes you see in a lot of other, as we discussed, you know, racing movies and things like that. But this, this is just such a fucking great ass movie. Like, I mean, I just saw it in so many other movies that came after it, which mm -hmm. isn't necessarily a direct, you know, like it had to be a direct connection. But like, man, yeah, this movie just 
really blew me away. Interestingly, uh, of course, as many films in the, the studio era, uh, Cy Enfield and Peggy Cummins both, after the fact, were on record saying that uh, the producers and the censors cut a bunch of stuff and they were pissed. And, and like some of the best stuff they shot was was cut, you know, and of course, Enfield probably some of the more political stuff or maybe some more raw stuff was like, you or know. more Gino at the cinema. I bet there yeah, was or maybe some Gino at the cinema. Yeah. Gino, anti-Italian, anti-Italian bias at the British film censors, <laughs> oh you know, those poor but, Italians always, always getting it. But yeah, it was still the fifties, you know, they still had the rank organization to deal with. And so there were, there were two rounds of cuts to what they turned in. And that was that, you know? So even that crazy how good of a movie it is. Yeah, because it is just gnarly. (laughs) Yeah, at least we still get a crash with like a dummy flying out of the the windshield. That was really nice when Red does finally crash at the end on his dangerous route because he has sabotage. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, that is like an awesome cut though, man. Like it's great when they're like kind of going over the cliff and just like in his last act before dying, he's just kind of like... What the fuck is going? And he looks at the number on the key, and he's like, "God damn, they switched the truck!" Like you could see it also in his like motherfucker moment of like, "This is why I'm dead," you know? They switched the fucking trucks, dude. But you know, it's it's such a better climax than high balling which yeah. just suddenly God. becomes yeah. like dirty fonda like he gets a magnum again like i said they tease this big fucking epic like run the gauntlet kind of like truck run you know and then it's just like he just grabs a revolver and has a showdown with harvey like, yeah it's so disappointing because you you really do think something's gonna happen because when the news goes out that like there's trouble we cut to that trucker diner where they get the call and they're like oh shit and then like Everyone in the diner like rallies. They all get in their trucks and they all drive over there. And then they like don't fucking they don't do anything. Yeah, they're they in one shot. Their trucks. They're in know? one shot fighting on the dock. Yeah, that's it. That film it. doesn't care about the people. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. <laughs> and certainly no. not the, the back. Uh, yeah, the back half is the Peter Fonda show, and it stops caring about trucks. And that yeah. was disappointing, because the front half really cares about trucks. In the end, when they're in, like, the quarry, also quarry connection in the films, but they're in the quarry, <laughs> and it's like, now it's a Western. And I'm like, what the fuck? Since, why, since when is this a Western? Yeah, there's I know. no, there's no, like truck prominently featured in its climax it's like a car right uh harvey's in a car isn't he or is he in a truck there's the there's the truck there but it's car and truck and then they get out and have a duel yeah they they shoot at each other with guns and shit (laughs) i mean i guess the big like centerpiece uh scene is sort of like a western as if you're driving a stagecoach and throwing the luggage on the bandits behind you you're right because i it does like i think it's it's either in a tagline or something where it was trying to be like a trucker western but i completely agree with you that it doesn't actually evoke it in any meaningful way until the end and then it just feels ridiculous that there is a standoff at the end it's like a waste of time yeah, because yeah, we have, like, you know, people having sex and then guys bursting into motel rooms with machine guns. It's like a Shane Black movie. Like, what's, <laughs> what, what's, yeah, going, ridiculous. what's going on here, you know? It's funny. I think that was the scene, like, when I watched it a few years ago in the a late-night haze. 
it was that was the scene i remembered the motel scene which is funny like i didn't remember the things leading up to it just like snippets for some reason that scene stuck out of my memory yeah and it's I know the why. least trucker well sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then to make everything even more confusing they showed the cn tower in the background towards the end so again yeah. it's like yeah where where does this take place i don't know here's toronto's only land visual landmark like okay. <laughs> well for what it's worth though i mean again i don't think it effectively evokes a western but the i do still think for, for what it's worth the landscape photography and highballing is so nice you could you could print some of that stuff put it in a frame yeah. there's some it's just great film stock it's just even the junkiest stuff looked so good uh from this era yeah and there's great stunt driving you know it, it really it, it delivers yeah. on like a, a lot of just like the solid cores of of the the sub genre yeah but yeah, maybe lacks a little substance, yeah, you know. Yeah. But I still, you know, I still had a great time riding in the cab of both of these big rigs. So I thank you both kindly. Sure. Uh, when you, and I guess I should say Molly, uh, you know, think of great, great truck cinema, what comes to your mind? Well, Molly really likes Convoy, obviously, and does like White Line Fever quite a bit. That was the that I feel like that's the other really good truck movie that delivers on what you would hope from a truck film. My favorite or one of my favorite truck films uh, is a favorite because it does not deliver in what you would expect. I did bring it up at the end of the last episode, I think, or maybe that was off air. But I love Marguerite Duras' Le Camion, which is uh, a film, you know, purportedly about a truck. <laughs> And there's like a truck on the poster and everything. And because have either of you seen it? I haven't. No. Oh, you. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you got to check it out. You'll love yeah. it. But it's 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 Marguerite Dura herself, like sitting at a table with Gerard Depardieu, like describing the narrative of the film that they like are either going to make or want to make or just this is it. And it's like about a truck driver. And like throughout then they're interrogating what this film is and like what narrative is right it's like a really perplexing thing to engage with and it's like kind of like oppressively boring at first glance but then it when you finally get on its rhythm it's like oh this is just i've seen own india thing. song yeah right yeah like this is its own it's a I totally know, singular work i know dura's <laughs> games so yeah I'm very, very i think there are a couple shots of trucks i see i remember it being like pov shots like while they're talking sometimes we get a camera attached to a front of a truck driving around but you maybe never see one but regardless when i think truck cinema that's one of the first that comes to mind for sure i mean i know I mean, we didn't talk about it because we don't need to because we all feel it but like goddamn sorcerer i think is the greatest fucking truck movie ever you know William Friedkin uh, Sorcerer. When uh, Hell, Hell, Hell Drivers came out, the Daily Worker said it was a, a Wages of Fear knockoff and that it was junk. Oof. Yeah. I but think they, wow. they had tough critics at the Daily Worker. I, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. You know? Very much so. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think the comparison is certainly there to, 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 be, to be found, but that's a very unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Very <laughs> totally. Unfair I, I totally <laughs> agree. Yeah. <laughs> They're after different things, but similar things. Yeah. I don't really like this movie, but 
I think it's fun. The Stephen King directed Maximum Overdrive. I remember oh, yeah. I won a Blu-ray of it during a trivia contest at the Music Box, and I think it may have been a Phantasm question, which is kind that's of funny. Uh, but that's how I happened upon that and have a copy. And that's like a silly, dumb, stupid thing. That but is it's a kind of nice ass movie. Dude. It is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we also watched uh, one of the great truck movies on this podcast, Out of the Blue. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not a lot of trucks in it, but it's a big truck movie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes, Have you guys yeah. been to the the like world's biggest truck stop in Iowa? Or not Iowa. Yeah, Iowa. Yeah. No, I have not. Oh, it's fun. It's like not terribly far. I don't drive far. through Iowa. Sure. Yeah. If I, if I mean, I, yeah, there's no real need. If I can avoid but, it. Yeah. It's a pretty wild place, though. It's got like a really swanky lounge. Oh yeah, I've seen like video of it. You know, I've seen yeah. people like saying, "This is you must a must visit if you pass yeah. through Iowa." Which all the decorations you can buy for your big rigs. It's so funny. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you both. Well, Marsh, uh, we're hopping in the cab with you next week, um, and to keep you awake on the road, we got to program a double feature. So, what are the films uh, that we got to bring? Well, I'm going to take a cue from you, Ryan, where last week you you leaned on Molly for your topic. Uh, and this week I'm going to lean on someone as well, because uh, a couple weeks ago after the Gore episode, uh, I was talking to, you know, unofficial fourth mic of the podcast, Alex Sherman. Uh, man, we really got to I really got to pivot away from some of the darkness and the blood and guts uh, and that's why I did the World Cinema Project topic, uh, and that was very fun. But then we were back to you know more darkness and trucks, you know, and shit. I mean, World Cinema was dark too. That's yeah, true. I mean, that was yeah. We didn't bring a couple yeah. of crowd pleasers. <laughs> yeah, and so you know Sherman and just off the top of his dome like two weeks ago said uh, the topic should be hugs and kisses. And I have not been able to get that out of my head. It just makes me laugh every time I think about you guys having to pick uh, based on the title alone, because I can give you no parameters here. Right. The topic for next week is hugs and kisses. And, you know, hopefully we have a nice time. You know, I, I won't be upset if we don't have a nice time, I'm sure. Well, I know that hugs and kisses aren't always great, you know, so... That's uh, true. <laughs> but let's see. Yeah, maybe you know, maybe try to keep try to keep it on the the, the bright, end the bright of yeah, 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 maybe you know, uh, whatever. So that's it. Hugs and kisses. We'll do. Give you a big bear hug. <laughs> As always, you can find us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and other places and you can send us an email at gauntlet movie podcast at gmail.com thanks everyone 24 pound deduction what advance you take five attacks no it's wrong this we see about it close off there's other fellas waiting to get paid. He's got all he's going to get. No, no, he's not got all. It's been a mistake. There's no mistake. What do you know about it? You, I'm talking to you. Hey, man. Not talking to the yellow belly. If he wants to find out why his pay was stopped, ask Ed. Ed? Yeah. He's stopping, right? 
to this, Anton. You mean on yellow belly? Me. I'm the road foreman. Yeah. And that's not all you are. What else am I? You scum. <laughs> <laughs>